A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. So trauten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Lusak. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer, and before we get to... Today's topic, which is Reb Meir Simcha HaKoyen of Dvinsk, known by his work, The Or Sameach. We'll get to him shortly. It's also uh, recently his yard site. But I'll just read a couple of, uh, continue the practice, which we won't do every time, but I wanted to share another couple of uh, um, letters I received from listeners and just... Um, share the additions that that has and adds enhances the the atmosphere of the Jewish history sound bites community uh, recently had a an episode on the beginning of World War II the outbreak of World War II and you mentioned the high casualty rate that the German army suffered during the Polish invasion and someone submitted a voice note so I can't quote it word for word I didn't transcribe it but um apparently um, not only did the German army suffer casualties, but their military resources were almost completely depleted. They were short on tanks, they were short on bullets, on ammunition, they were short on raw materials, steel, um, gas, and they were at an extremely vulnerable position. And had England and France followed through with their invasion with, through, from their declaration of war of Germany, then Hitler's army may have been easily defeated at that time. So says German military records of that period of time, because the Polish uh, campaign really cost them an enormous amount in resources. I did not know that. Um, therefore, thank you to that listener who submitted that. And that really adds a lot to the story of the Polish invasion and how World War II might have been. So that's a very interesting uh, addition. A couple of older ones. Um, we had a few weeks ago a episode about interesting and kind of obscure uh, stories of female Hasidic leaders. And they were definitely the exception to the rule. We had one angry um, reply about how you're trying to prove that women had a place in Hasidus. These are the exceptions that prove the rule. 
which I think is a point that I made during that episode, although I don't remember. But obviously, these are the exceptions that prove the rule, and I was not trying to push uh, uh, women Hasidic leadership. Um, and anyway, I'm just a historian. I don't have any social causes um, that I try to promote. In any event, there was another one that I got. This was interesting, actually. Um, and I quote, Thanks for the episode about female Hasidic leaders and Rebbes. You mentioned a few Belzer women. One woman who you did not mention is the current Belzer Rebetzin. Over the last year or two, videos have gone around the internet of her fearing Rebish on the ladies' side by a Hasidic wedding and at least one other video of her fearing a, t- a shtickle tish for men. It may have been relatives, but she acted like a Rebbe. There may have been other videos with her as well. End of letter. Very, very interesting. Of course, my reply to him was that if she's still alive and she's doing these things now, then there's no way I would know about it. But in 40, 50 years from now, I'll probably research it because I only know history and nothing contemporary. But I thought that might be interesting for some of our listeners um, to know. So that's a very interesting one as well. This was one of my all-time favorites, even though this is from a long, long time ago. But um, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, it was about the the um, the one where the rabbis, the rabbis in the resistance during the Holocaust and the roles that rabbis played in the resistance during the Nazis. That was an episode we had, I think, shortly before Tisha B'Av. And uh, I mentioned how um, Haredi uh, journalists, uh, publicists, shapers of the public agenda for the Haredi community in Israel during the 1950s tended to blame the Zionists for the entire Holocaust, and that kind of colored the way we view history um, um, through that lens that uh, we tend to confuse who the real... um, who the real enemy was at that time because of political considerations during the 1950s. I mentioned Moshe Schoenfeld's uh, name, and, and uh, I got this, this reply. Um, I quote, Between Schoenfeld and Prime Minister Bibi, the Nazis needed to be talked into the final solution. They only differ on whether the culprit was the Mufti or the Zionists or perhaps some dystopian collaboration of the two. End quote. I thought that was fantastic, um, especially light of uh, of uh, recent events. So, so of course we know that the Nazis were the ones who perpetrated the final solution, and I just thought that was a funny uh, uh, letter. Uh, let's see if we have any time for more. It's literally endless. You know what? We'll leave that for another time. There's always more episodes, and we'll of course fill you in on all the greatest letters that come into Jewish history sound bites. So I want to go back to uh, what we're going to talk about today. Um Simcha of Dvinsk, Dorosameach, a very, very unique personality, a very um, a great Talmud Chacham, probably a genius. Um, he is somewhat well-known through his farim, Arsameach, on the Rambam, the Yeshivas Arsameach, which is named after him. Um, his even more popular Sefer, which was actually only published after he died. He prepared it. He wrote it uh, many years before that. He never got around to publishing it. It was published after he died. His Sefer on Chumash, called the Meshachachma, which is very popular. Uh, but he, nef- he never left over any descendants. He had one daughter, 
who married a young rising star in the uh, rabbinic world of the pre-war era, Rabbi Avram Luftvir, who moved to Warsaw, the center of Jewish life, and in Warsaw, the great center of rabbinical leaders and, and, and great Talmidei Chachamim, he already was a shining star in his young 20s, and he was seen by many as being a future superstar in the Jewish world. And unfortunately, both he and his wife, Darsameach's only daughter, died in their 20s. I think he was like somewhat 26 or 27 when he passed away. He's buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. Now, on my trips to Eastern Europe, uh, it's quite rare that we end up in Dvinsk. Dvinsk today has some impossible to pronounce Latvian name. It's in Latvia. Um, not even next to the capital of Riga, which we sometimes go to, especially on stopovers, but it's also a little further out. It's more likely that we'll go there if we're in Lithuania, and it's just over the border, and um, and um, of course EU, so there's no no weights at the border. So sometimes we end up there in Dvinsk by the Arsamech, and of course the Rogatchover is buried there as well. Both of them did not die in Dvinsk. They both died in different places, different years, obviously, also. But they were brought back to be buried in the city where they had been the rabbi. Um, but we don't we don't go there very often. We don't visit very often. But Warsaw is a place on almost not almost every trip, but many many trips, and the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, which is a fascinating place, and there's so much to see there and so much to relate there. Um, so right in front of the Chemda Shloima, the Shloima Zalman Lifshitz, the first chief rabbi of Warsaw, which is a very, very prominent uh, place in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery. So right next to it, right in front of it, is this grave of Avram Luftvir, the son-in-law, the only son-in-law of the Arsameach, um, Rameir Simcha. And it even says that prominently on his gravestone. He is the son-in-law of Rameir Simcha, the rabbi of Dvinsk, of course, Shlita, he died in his father-in-law's lifetime, and um, he's right there. So not only do I tell the groups a little bit about Avram Luftvir and the fact that they buried him in the rabbinical section of the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery, right next to the Chemdas Shloyma's kever, then for sure testifies to how this young man in his 20s was seen by the Warsaw Jewish community, but we also um, can get as close as we can to speaking about Rav Meir Simcha on a trip to Poland, because, very, like I said, we don't get that often to Dvinsk, and it's an opportunity to speak about this great man as well. Um, so like I said, he didn't have descendants, and he, also, um, and he also did not have a yeshiva. He was a communal rabbi of Dvinsk for close to 40 years, and he you know, expressed his leadership in, in that regard um, as well. He grew up in in a, in a little town in Lithuania, and he learned for many years after his wedding in Bialystok, which is a large city. He learned to, by the rabbi, studied under the rabbi of Bialystok, who wrote the famous Chuvas Oynig Yantif, or Yantif Halprin. He learned the Chavrusa with the future rabbi of Aishishak, or Yosef Zundel Hutner, famous Hutner family, which is also a story. And he eventually becomes the rabbi of Dvinsk, which he remains there for the rest of his life. And it goes up in uh, legend, the relationship that he has with the Hasidic rabbi of Dvinsk. Dvinsk was a large Jewish city. It had previously been named Denenberg or something in that regard. And, um, and they had a large non-Hasidic Jewish community there and a large Hasidic Jewish community there. And Rabbi Yosef Rosen, 
who is a Chabad Kapust Chassid. He and one of the famous geniuses of the last century, the Ragachover. He become he became later the rabbi of the Hasidic community, and the Rebbeir Simcha was already before that the rabbi of the non-Hasidic community. And the interesting relationship that the two of them had has become the stuff of legend. Some of the stories are even true. Um, interestingly enough, someone just sent me yesterday, um, ironically, um, that um, Rabbi Abba David Goldfein, who was a son-in-law of the Ragachover and later a Rav in Moscow, was in Moscow under the communists in the 1930s, and he was speaking to another famous Moscow rabbi, also under the communists, Rabbi Yaakov Klemis, who later moved to Israel, was active in the Rabbanut, who wrote many Sfarim, a very big Paisik. And Rabbi Yaakov Klemis writes that he heard from Rabbi David Goldfein, the son-in-law of the Ragachover, that it's hard to say the difference between my father-in-law and Rameir Simcha. Whatever my father-in-law knew, Rameir Simcha also knew. So what's the difference between the Ragachover and Rameir Simcha? I don't really know, which is, which is funny because, you know, there's probably 350 stories out there trying to describe the differences between the two and how much each one knew, and who knew more, and the competition between the two of them, which I'm sure a lot of it is, is definitely true. And, you know, when you have two very charismatic and very knowledgeable and very dynamic uh, rabbis in a community, it's definitely going to be an active scene. Interestingly enough, um, the, the uh, first head of the Mossad, the first, one of the first heads of the Mossad, Isser Harel, was um, an Israeli legend, um, especially... Um, in uh, in uh, in his early years of the active in the Mossad and became very famous with the capture of Adolf Eichmann, which was uh, which was what he led um, the operation that he led in the 1960 in Argentina. He grew up in Dvinsk and he wrote in his memoirs. Now, Mr. Harel, obviously head of the Mossad and the Israeli establishment in the 1960s, he's very very far from being a religious Jew. Uh, very, very distant from Jewish, from religious life, traditional life, very secular um, in, you know, in, in many ways. And he writes in his memoirs his memories of Rameir Simcha. So it's a very interesting uh, perspective that he had. And he relates an almost Hasidish Amaisa about Rameir Simcha that has become quite famous about how, you know, as was common in those parts of the world when the ice would uh, melt in the spring so that the melting ice would cause floods and it would sweep away bridges and and flood towns and there was danger that the that the uh, the river in Dvinsk would overflow because of this ice flood and there was a public prayer in the main community shul that Rameir Simcha as the rabbi led and someone came running into the shul and said it's overflowing the bridge, it's going to overflow into the streets, we're all going to drown in this flood, it's going to destroy all, all our property. And Rameir Simcha came out in his talis, leading the whole congregation, and they davened together, and all of a sudden the waters calmed and went down. So he said, I was standing a few feet away from Rameir Simcha, and I testify to, the, to seeing that through the prayers of Rameir Simcha, the waters calmed and went down. So that's an interesting uh, testimony as well. In any event, a major story in Rameir Simcha's life was his participation 
in the 1910 rabbinical conference in St. Petersburg. Um, the Tsar, the, the Tsar's government from the mid-1800s, um, called these conferences of Jewish leaders to make decisions in regards to the Jewish citizens of the Russian Empire, and every several years they were called. Very often the rabbinic leadership was not invited, um, and this time they succeeded in getting traditional rabbinical leaders invited on a somewhat large scale, and therefore a year before the 1910 conference, there was a preliminary conference in Vilna, and, and organized by Lithuanian Rabbanim, and in Warsaw, organized by the Gera Rebbe, to, to, to create a platform of what they're going to discuss at this rabbinical conference. You have to understand that it was illegal in the Russian Empire for people to gather together without an, a license from the Tsarist government. So to be able to just gather together and decide on public policy was illegal unless you got a license beforehand. And that made life quite difficult in the Russian Empire, one of the many things that did. And when they arrived at the conference a year later, there were 42 representatives of the, of the Jewish community of the Russian Empire. And in fact, in the letters of the Rashab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe Lubavitch, who was one of the dominant figures at the conference, he led the, uh, the conservative element, at the rabbinical element at the conference, and he, in his letters, it lists the names of the 42 participants of the, uh, at the conference. There are some great, great rabbis who were there, Rabbi Tzalopanovizer, um, Rabbi Chaim Oizer Grzynski, um, the Radzina Rebbe, the Sokolova Rebbe, uh, of course, the Rashab, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, um, the, the Chabad Rebbe of Kapust, Rabbi Shmaryo Noyach Schneerson, and many others. So, so um, who was, he was actually living in Babroisk at the time. In any event, so the Arsameach, one of the main issues on the agenda of the rabbis at this conference was the future of the rabbinate. There were all kinds of Jewish community issues and education, changing the cheder system to educate Jewish youth. But the main issue on the agenda was the rabbinate. The Russian government did not recognize the regular rabbis, what we would call them. They only recognized what was called the Rav Mita'am, which is the rabbi, uh, the licensed rabbi by the Russian government, because he had a certificate attesting to his education and to his knowledge of the Russian language, and he was the one recognized. Now, these people were not uh, uh, the, the regular rabbis appointed by the communities, and um, this caused a lot of friction within each community. These, the Rav Mitam was in charge of registering births, marriages, deaths, um, anything vis-a-vis the Russian government. And then the regular rabbi, who was not recognized, was in charge of the regular communal issues, halacha, and the community leadership as far as the traditional elements in the community were concerned. And this caused a lot of friction in the community. This caused a lot of an economic financial drain in the community. They had to pay salary to rabbis. One Rav Mitam, who was just really a clerk, a, a, an official of the community, and then the real rabbi. So what the proposal was, the main proposal at the conference was that the Arsameach uh, led uh, for was to get rid of the Rav Mitam and have only the rabbi in charge. And how would he do that? In a very simple way have every rabbi be licensed by the Russian government. They'll learn a little Russian language, 
they'll get a bit of a secular education, they'll get a certificate from the czarist government that they're licensed to be a rabbi, and then poof, we got rid of every Rav Mitam, we got rid of the friction, we got rid of the financial drain, and we fixed up Russian Jewish life in one instant. And most of the rabbis in the conference agreed with the Arsameach, and he led this battle against both the progressives, the progressives at the, you know, with, um, people who wanted rabbis to be more modern and to be very, you know, college educated and to have a wide uh, range knowledge of Russian and Russian culture and other stuff. And he also battled against the conservatives who said, no, you're giving in to the Russian government that the rabbis have to know Russian and the rabbis have to have some sort of secular education and they have to have a certificate from the Russian government that's giving in and that's giving in to modernity and therefore they, were, they did not agree either. Now the ones who backed Rosameach were Reb Chaim who said at the conference that his wife's grandfather, Bisrol Salanter, said 80 years ago that rabbis should know the language of the country, they should know Russian, they should have an awareness of what's going on and there's nothing wrong with it. Reb uh, the, the Chabad Rebbe of Kapust, and most of the other rabbis, when they voted, the majority voted uh, with the Arsameach and his group, and the minority was with the progressives, and a smaller minority was with the conservatives. So, so the Arsameach had a, 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 something that he knew would, would help him win. And what that was, was a document by Reb David Karliner. Reb David Karliner, Reb David Friedman, who was the Rav in Karlin next to Pinsk, was considered, he was nicknamed at the time, the Zkan Harabonim of Lita, the elder rabbi of Lithuania. He was a senior rabbi, senior Paisik, very tremendous rabbinical leader at the time, at a time of great rabbinical leaders, many of Great rabbis who did not even attend this conference were great rabbis. Well, Yechayim Meizel was not at this conference. He was the big rub in Ludge. Someone asked me why Reblazer Gordon of Tells wasn't invited to the conference. And I explained to him that being that this conference took place in March and April, the conference was a month long, by the way. It took place in March and April of 1910. Reblazer Gordon was busy dying in London at the time and obviously was unable to attend this conference. But in any event, Reb David Karliner was the senior rabbi and respected leader uh, of, of, uh, of Lithuanian Jewry, of the Lithuanian rabbinical world, and he signed a letter, he wrote a letter and signed, he wasn't able to attend, he was weak, he was sick, he was elderly, and he signed a letter uh, supporting the Arsameach's position. The, the, the conservatives, led by the Rashab of Chabad, and backed up by Reb Chaim Brisker, were very against any sort of compromise, and they got unexpected help from the Chafetz Chaim, who was not an official participant in the conference, but the Chafetz Chaim had sent a spy, his Rosh Hashiva from Radin, Rabbi Meishel Andinsky, to alert him if anything would happen at the conference, not to his liking. So the Chafetz Chaim came and attended the conference in the middle and tried to uh, um, oppose an, uh, the Arsameach's position, and he backed up the Rashab of Chabad and Reb Chaim Brisker in a very powerful and personal confrontation that took place. The the, the Arsameach reassured the Chavetz Chaim that the rabbis will remain rabbis and the Torah will remain Torah. And he said to the Chavetz Chaim, "You have lived in a small town your whole life. I'm a Rav in Dvinsk. Reb David Karliner is a Rav in Karlin next to Pinsk." Uh, 
We're rabbis of big towns, big cities. We understand the needs of the people and the needs of the rabbinate. And you, who never served as a rabbi altogether, you're never an official rabbinical position, and you have never lived in a large city, so it's hard for you to understand the needs of the rabbinate. That's what he said to the Chavetz Chaim. And the Chavetz Chaim said back to him, but I lead a yeshiva, and I understand the future needs of the youth and of the Jewish people. And that was the end of their confrontation. In the vote, the Arsameach's position seemed to have won, um, but they maintained a mutual respect for each other. Rabbi Chaim Brisker, even though he argued viciously with Arsameach at the conference, he went to visit him at the end of the conference to take leave, and he said, Arsameach is the Gadol Hador. So even though I disagree with him, and he was very sharply disagreed, he refused to look at him during the conference, but still he paid his respects and visited him because he said, like I said, he said, the Arsameach, or Meir Simcha is the Gadol Hador, the same thing, Rabbi Chavetz Chaim held a public hesped in the Radin Yeshiva when the Arsameach passed away. All these people disagreed on an ideological level. level they still maintained uh, good personal relationships. So this was a little bit about the Arsameach. This is Yehuda Geber on Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, And of course, trips and tours to see these people and hear about these places. Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.